But I wanted to talk about a film I saw a number of years ago, <coughs> Love Actually. It's one of those films which captures a culture, our culture. It's the story uh, of the love lives of eight couples, all of them very, very different, each with their particular challenges and temptations and failures and uh, foibles. Not every story is happy. None of the stories is simple. There is lust, anger, jealousy, hatred, betrayal, boredom, even at points alongside laughter, simple pleasures, ecstatic happiness. If you've seen the film, it's, it, it's very rich in many ways. And the message of the film comes over pretty clearly. This world is, is messed up. It is a confusing, frustrating, sometimes tragic place. But in the midst of all that, there are islands of love. In fact, probably to use the image of the, of the film more, there is an environment of love. There is a substrate of love, if we can only see it. The tagline says, love actually is all around. And when I saw the film, I really enjoyed it, although... I warn you, it is crude in parts. I liked it, though, because it, it moved us a little away from the fantasy um, idea of, of love towards the real world. I liked it because it self-consciously portrayed, alongside sexual love, friendship and family love as important loves. I liked it because it asserted that the main thing in life is Love, actually. Well, that's a very biblical theme, as we're going to see in a minute. But I have to say, I was also dissatisfied. I was less left questioning whether dysfunctional, sexually unfaithful lives, alternating between ecstasy and despair and settling on quiet resignation and simple joys is all that we can hope for. Isn't there something more? And as I thought about that, my, my mind turned to a lonely hillside, to a man nailed to a cross, dying alone, rejected, in agony, and I remembered those words of John in 1 John 4.10 that Richard has already read to us. This is love. God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And uh, frankly, I thought I've got some deeper probing to do here. I've got to go a little bit deeper if I'm to understand what love is really all about. Perhaps even more importantly, to find that love. And this morning I want us to begin to do that probing as we examine this famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 
13. We're going to start this week, then we actually have a break for a few weeks where we um, have another series, a little series on the, on, on the Gospel before we're going to come back to this chapter and, uh, uh, and really start to think about what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has to say. And today, in many ways, I'm going to be laying some foundations. And I'll have to remind you in a few weeks of those foundations, but today it is laying foundations before we can start to build on them. Remember, in this series, um, uh, from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 so far, we've been asking the question, what does a spiritual community look like? And what does a spiritual person look like? And we first said, a spiritual community, a spiritual person, is, is, is a person and people who confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what the Holy Spirit does most fundamentally. He helps us to see, to live, to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Then we said a spiritual community is also a gifted community with, with both what you could say are natural and supernatural gifts distributed as God wants them. And we saw as well last week that a spiritual community is, is a group of people who use those gifts in a, in a committed and in a coordinated way as God has called them to live as the body of Christ so that together there is a sense in which we are now Christ to this world. That's what we've seen up to now. But Paul knows he needs to deal with this other issue. It's fine to confess Jesus as Lord. It's um, excellent to be gifted as a community. But there's something else that a real spiritual community needs. Verse 31 of chapter 12, I will show you the most excellent way. He says, the most excellent way is the way of love. Indeed, as he goes on in this chapter, he says it even more strongly. Everything else, he says, is useless without love. Extraordinarily strong he is as he seeks to establish that point in our minds. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain Nothing. He says, first of all, gifts are useless without love. Let's get that really clearly in our minds. The tongues of men and of angels, he speaks of there. Um, uh, uh, angel tongues seem, seems to be this controversial issue that there was in Corinth that we haven't started to think about deeply yet because it gets addressed in 1 Corinthians 14. But, but the, the habit of that church... Um, uh, and a pattern that is seen in, in, down through the church 
the history of the church of speaking in mysterious languages. If I speak in those amazing mysterious languages, he says, but have lo- don't have love, it's useless. The tongues of men, he speaks of as well. Perhaps he just means in normal languages that communicate to different cultures. If I've got that gift, but I don't have love, it's useless. It goes on. If I have the gift of prophecy, he says, have um, divine insight into the world, but have not love, it's a waste of time. If I have, he says, faith that can move mountains, it seems to be, as I mentioned a couple of uh, weeks ago, that, that that's a specific gift of faith, an ability to understand the mind of God and to trust God about uh, something that, 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 that is going to happen in such a way that that, that, that that person becomes involved in some extraordinary action of God that Jesus described as, you know, that could be as amazing as throwing a, ma- a, a, a mountain into the sea. It doesn't seem to be saving faith because it's a faith that only some believers have. It seems to be that that, that, that additional trust in some providence of God. If I have that sort of faith, faith that can say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea, I know, God, uh, I know God's purposes so well, and I'm so aligned with it, but I have not love, it's useless. He uses vivid imagery to... To, to try and establish the, the uselessness of these things without love. He says, um, if I speak in those ways but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I am just so much hot air, we might say. If I have all of those gifts... That, are, that we've been just discussing about, uh, but ha- have not love. I am nothing. I'm a nobody. If I um, give all I possess to the poor, as we'll see in a minute in verse 3, finally, but have not love, I gain nothing. He uses those phrases to really hammer it home. An empty clanging symbol, you are absolutely nothing. You gain absolutely nothing if you do not have love, he says. This is fundamental then, isn't it? Imagine how impressive a church with all those gifts that have been talked about would look. Speaking in tongues, amazing ability to know the mind of God and to, 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 to see the future. Imagine the people would throng to that church if it was exercising those gifts. Seeing miracles perhaps. Imagine the impressiveness of the person who had those gifts. But if love's not there, worthless. Remember, he's not saying 
gift, those gifts themselves are worthless. Far from that, he's been saying all through chapter 12 that, that, uh, that gifts are, are really, really useful in the body of Christ. But they are not sufficient on their own to label any individual or any church as spiritual. Not, po- not appropriate, not possible for a person, for instance, to say, well, you're a loving person. That's great. I'm a gifted person. You, you provide the love and I'll provide the gift. Love is absolutely essential. Gifts, useless without love. Now, knowledge, I picked this out because it's, uh, I think, particularly important for us. Knowledge is useless without love. Um, in one sense, it's another aspect of gifts, but let me point it out to you and, uh, and heighten it. If I can, verse 2, fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. I picked that out because in a city like Oxford that is, that is so important, isn't it? And let's remember again, not saying knowledge and being able to fathom mysteries is worthless. Quite the opposite. That ability is a vital ability for God's church. That, that ability, that gift, if uh, someone has it, is a precious gift from God. But as uh, Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up. It's love that builds up. I say that because there is a danger, there is always a danger of a church in a city like ours of simply becoming a brainy church. Now, I guess with two of the best universities in the, in the country in this city that there will be a good number of brainy people around and that is absolutely great. No one should be embarrassed if God has given them that ability. It is a great gift from God. But love is more fundamental. And I do see, I have to say, a habit amongst brainy people who uh, um, themselves know that their heart needs to change. I do see a habit of them simply thinking that by the sheer use of their brain they can transform themselves. And there is something more fundamental that needs to happen in us. Something vital and important. Knowledge is really valuable. Really 
important. But unless there is love growing in a heart, it's useless. And then perhaps the most shocking thing of all sacrifice is useless without love. Embracing poverty, for instance, give, if I give all I have to the poor. Even, he says, becoming a martyr in verse 3. If I surrender my body to the flames. If those, we have those things, but do not have love, it is useless. Imagine that. Just, just, just think about that for a minute. Imagine a person who comes in amongst us absolutely fired up with zeal for God, it seems. Imagine them saying, I could have a great career because I'm very able, but I'm going to give that up and I want to be a missionary. Imagine us supporting them and them going out to wherever and either getting eaten by cannibals or dying of dysentery. And getting obituaries in all the Christian uh, uh, newspapers around the world. But God says, you didn't see, did you? You didn't see. In that person was no real love. Just zeal. Just Reckless determination. They gained nothing from me. Now, Paul hasn't, uh, hasn't then established how vital what he's going to say in this chapter is by, by the time we've got to the end of verse 3 then I, I venture to suggest that you've not been reading it clearly. He is stunningly, shockingly emphatic about this fundamental need if we are to be really uh, called children of the living God, spiritual people. Love, as the old theologians used to say, is a cardinal virtue. That is, it, it is a virtue without which we cannot be called Christians. There are other cardinal virtues. Faith is one of them. That is, that is saving faith. That is trusting Jesus for our, our, uh, our, our forgiveness. Without faith it is impossible to please God, says the Bible. Faith is a cardinal virtue. But here's another absolutely central one. Love. So we must understand what it means, mustn't we? We must have it clearly in our, heart, in our hearts and in our minds. 
so that we are not deceived. And, and we're going to start digging today and then we're going to dig a little bit more over uh, in a few weeks' time to try to understand what the Apostle is talking about. Um, and uh, in order to dig, we must start to answer the, the question, what love is not? We must start to see that. The first thing that we need to realise, that love is not an action. Now, this was a common evangelical statement in my experience in, the, in past generations that, that love is what you do and of course there's, there's quite a lot of, lot of um, uh, strength in that statement there is a lot of truth in that statement but it is not properly true and it cannot be properly true because of what Paul has said in verse 3 if I, if I give all my money to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love I gain nothing he's not saying but there's another thing you can do that will gain you lots of stuff he's using two examples prime examples of the most most deep commitment we could express to God and he's saying it's not enough. Action is not enough. It is not just about what you do. I, I, I grew up as a, as a young Christian with that um, simplistic answer and uh, although it helps in certain respects, it does not fully help us to see what the Bible is talking about when it is talking about love. Don't buy it. It is not just an action. But nor is it just an emotion. Okay, that, 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 that's what our world tends to think. Love is about falling in love. It's about having certain heart-fluttering uh, feelings. Um, uh, uh, and of course, just as with the action answer, uh, I would want to say that there is a significant emotional dimension to what is being talked about when the Bible talks about love. But it is not just a heart-fluttering emotion. It's not just a feeling of warmth and happiness and all of those, all of those sorts of things. And the reason I'm confident is n it is not it's because of the way, the broad way that Scripture talks about love. For instance, Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines those He loves. I.e. an aspect of the Lord's love for us is actually that He's quite tough with us. He's not feeling all warm and fluttery as He disciplines us. We know that, 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 that family love, the love of a father particularly that that passage is, is talking about, is, is, is not just happy warmth. And then uh, uh, Jesus, of course, remember, 
told us to love our enemies. I don't think any of us would think that he was telling us to have happy, warm, fluttery feelings whilst people beat us and oppose us and despise us. Now, it's something else. Something else. If we're going to get to the bottom of what this, this, this instruction to love in the Bible is all about, it's something else. There's, of course, emotional dimensions to it, but it's something else. One, one other thing it is not, as well, that I, I want, to, want to really um, uh, point out. It is not a passionless commitment to people. Now that often goes with the, with the idea of it's just what you, what, what you do. And it's very much built, very often in some um, people's minds, on uh, the idea that the uh, major word that is used in the New Testament and is used in this chapter for love is the Greek word agape. And they say there are other words like eros, which is about sexual love. There's phileo, which is about uh, brotherly love and that sort of warmth in in families. And then there is this word agape, which is simply a, a passionless, principled commitment to other people. It's not passionless either. Listen to uh, the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I wrote to you, writing to the Corinthians later on, out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. He's, by, he's not passionless, is he? God's not passionless as he loves us. There's distress, anguish of heart, tears in his eyes as he writes. So I want to to try to, to, uh, as we lay foundations this morning, I want to try to define for you what love is as the Bible talks about it. All of those other things, they've got close to it but they haven't quite hit the nail on the head. And the, here's here's my, my, my best effort. Love is a disposition or, a, or an attitude, you could, you could put it. It is, um, let me suggest, a settled, passionate desire for a person and for their good. So when we love God, we desire God. And we desire God's good, which in his case is that he should be worshipped, that he should be glorified, that he should be enjoyed as the source of, of all good things. That is what it means to love God. There is, there is passion to it, there is settled commitment to the person and to his good. But it is more than just action, more than just fluttery emotion. It's certainly not passionless. And when we love a person, in in many ways it is like that. Jesus said, 
the two loving people and loving God are, are like one another. We desire that person to enjoy them, to, to, to take deep pleasure in them, and we desire good for that person, that they should be conformed to the likeness of Christ, their ultimate good. In fact, love in the Bible is ultimately simply the imitation of God. See, God has a passionate desire for you. He has a passionate desire for your good. And he expresses it in a certain way that the Bible calls love. Because God is love. And our calling is simply to be imitators of him. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 to 2 says, Be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or as John puts it, we love because he first loved us. He loves us. He loves us so much he gave his son for us. Jesus loved us so much that he was prepared to go to the cross for us. This is love. What God does in the world is love. And real love, real love in believers only, only comes from that God. The Bible is absolutely clear. Romans chapter 8 says that uh, the natural mind, verse 7, the mind of a natural person is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law and the summation of God's law is love. Jesus made that plain uh, uh, again and again. And the natural mind does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You and I cannot love in the way that the Bible calls us to love without God. We can do some things, which is great. We can have some emotions, which is great. We can even conjure up some sort of a, a settled commitment to another person which goes beyond those emotions. But we cannot find the real love that the Bible is talking about from within from within our natural selves. 
We do not do that. Indeed, says the Apostle, we cannot do that. But back in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he said something very different. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. If you are a Christian here this morning, then there is the most extraordinary miracle going on in your heart. It is deeper than just a commitment to do the right thing. It is deeper than just ephemeral emotions that may come and go. It is the beginnings of a settled, passionate desire for a person and for the good of that person. For God and for the good of God and for other people as an extension of that and their good. I want to end this foundation laying session by pointing out two fallacies that we must avoid. Fallacy number one. But we've seen them both. I just want to heighten them. Fallacy number one. Love is about being always nice. That's what we often think. Love's about being sugary sweet and tolerating people. God showed his love in Jesus. And Jesus was far from always nice. He had a much deeper, richer, more passionate commitment to people's good than he could ever express by simply being nice. I've been massively helped by a book entitled Bold Love by Dan Allender. I I thoroughly recommend it. He says in his introduction, um, if Jesus had practised the kind of love many people advocate nowadays, he would likely have lived to a ripe old age. We've come to view love as being nice, forgiving and forgetting, yielding to the desires of other others, yet the kind of love modelled by Jesus has nothing to do with manners or unconditional acceptance. It is shrewd, disruptive, courageous and as a result totally unacceptable. It is a passionate commitment to people's real good. It's uncomfortable to be around people who love like that. But that is the love that God is wanting to settle in hearts. And the second thing I want to just say to you really, really strongly, the second fallacy, love is easy. Love comes naturally. No, it doesn't. It's the central miracle God does in your hearts. Douglas Coupland at the end of his little book, Life After God, 
Uh, he's not a believer, he's exploring what the title says, life without God. He says at the end of it, uh, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. I am sick and can no longer make it alone. Now listen to this. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. We need God if we're going to be people who really love. It is impossible to do it without Him. But His Holy Spirit sheds that love into our hearts.